We've been working our way through uh, this book the last three weeks, and we'll continue into the coming weeks. We'll be reading uh, verses 1 down through verse 14. So would you read with me, Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience, with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Would you pray with me now as we begin to look at this passage together? Father, as we open your word this morning as your people, our longing and our desire is that Christ would come and make himself known to our hearts. Father, that he would be preaching himself from your word and that he would be what we remember when we leave here. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Leading up to uh, December 31st, I'm guessing that many of you, like me, found your email inbox inundated with all sorts of emails from folks asking for money. Organizations, individuals making an ask of you wanting you to donate financially before the end of the year for them to make their budget, whatever that might be. These types of asks are only fruitful potentially if you, as the one being asked, have the means to actually fulfill what is being asked. Makes sense, right? It's only going to work for them to ask for you for money if you are able to actually provide them with some money. So let's make an uh, absurd example here, one that should actually make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. A nonprofit organization wouldn't write letters to the homeless men and women staying at a shelter in the middle of December asking them to, a contribu to contribute to a cause, would they? That would be foolish it would be debasing and insulting as well. What I want us to notice here as we dive into Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, is that Paul has very, very high aspirations 
for the Colossian church. But rather than immediately communicating to the Colossians how they need to change their thinking, change their behavior, believe something different, do something different, Paul takes his request to someone who can actually respond favorably to what is needed. He is bringing his ask to God. So after communicating to the Colossians what he's praising God for in verses 1 through 8, he then opens the door to his prayer closet and he invites the Colossian church in. And you and I this morning get to listen in on Paul's prayer. Look at verse 9, and this is from the New English translation. For this reason we also, from the day we heard about it, have not ceased praying for you and asking God. And we'll stop right there. Let's fast forward 2,000 years. What might Paul, if he were alive today, tell us that he was praying for concerning Sojourn Community Church? What might his burden be for a young church that he didn't plant and for a church family that he has never met? What we are looking at in verses 9 down through verse 14 is an apostolic ask for a young church. That's the title of this message, an apostolic ask for a young church. Let's begin here, though. How would you define the gospel? Think about that for just a moment. If I were to come up to you and say, give me a 15 to 30 second response, what is the gospel? How would you answer? There's multiple good answers to summarize what the gospel message is. This, for me, is perhaps uh, the, the easiest way for me to remember what the gospel is, and it's one I will be bringing before us frequently This is the good news of the gospel, that God the Father, by His Spirit, saves sinners and restores His creation through the perfect life, sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The gospel is the good news that God the Father, by His Spirit, saves sinners and restores His creation through the perfect life, sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, in this apostolic ask, Paul is going to seamlessly tie together both facets, both realities of what the gospel accomplishes. It saves sinners and it restores creation. God both rescues individuals from their rebellion and he also, through the gospel, is restoring his creation from the effects of that rebellion by means of the finished work of Jesus. You and I, no surprise, live in a broken world and a painful reality. Many of you have experienced that this week in deeper ways than you have previous weeks. Even as followers of Jesus, we have a hard time perceiving how Jesus is at work in our broken creation, our broken world, we have a hard time seeing how that's possible, restoring his new creation. So followers of Jesus, our experiences of suffering, of temptation, of depression, of anxiety, our experiences of sin and of shame, 
those experiences can often be summed up in this way. We are forgetting that we are living in a broken creation, yet also as part of the creation restoration work of God. Both realities are true at the same time. We live in a broken world and God is simultaneously at work within this broken world, restoring it back to himself. We are forgetting also that as we walk into this restoration, it's something that we cannot do apart from the one who has himself invited us into it. There is brokenness in our world, and there's brokenness in each of our stories. We could spend the rest of the day just going person by person, recounting the brokenness of each of our stories. But there's also beauty to behold as we see what God has done, is doing, and will do through Jesus because of the gospel. So it's through Paul's apostolic ask for a young church in these verses that we're going to be confronted with this big idea. Jesus is inviting you to learn to walk with him in his new creation. Today, through this passage, Jesus is inviting you personally to learn to walk with him in his new creation. So let's get to this big idea by asking four questions of our text this morning. Here are the four questions. Number one, what is the intent of Paul's ask? Second, what is the content of Paul's ask? Third, what are the results of the ask if God answers it? And fourth, What is the basis upon which Paul even feels he's able to make such an ask of God? So let's take these one at a time, shall we? First, what is the intent of the ask? This question is getting at the why behind the ask. And we can see that why if we skip ahead from verse 9 Uh, just a few phrases into the prayer. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. Again, this is the New English translation. For this reason, we also, from the day we heard about you, have not ceased praying for you and asking, and now we're going to skip ahead, so that you may live worthily of the Lord and please Him in all respects. The ESV says, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing him. So why does the apostle ask God for what he does? Quite simply, it is so that the Colossian believers would experience, we might summarize it this way, fellowship with God. That is why Paul is going to ask anything of God. It is for the purpose that the Colossian believers would grow in their experience of what it means to fellowship with God. Walking with God and walking worthy of God is language describing fellowship. After the first creation, you may remember that it was customary for God to come down and walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. There was unhindered fellowship between the triune God and the mankind that he had created in his image. But the brokenness that you and I have lived this week is not how things always were, as the answer to the Heidelberg Catechism question six reminds us. God created man good and in his own image, that is, 
in true righteousness and holiness so that he might truly know God, his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. But mankind, through Adam and Eve, rejected that true righteousness and holiness that allowed unhindered fellowship with God. So after the first Adam's failure, we see mankind doing what when God comes to walk with them in the garden? What do they do? They run and hide. The fellowship has been broken. Mankind was no longer holy. But, skip ahead to Colossians chapter 1, Paul has heard a few things about the Colossian believers. He's heard, as we listened or as we learned last week, that they are walking in faith and in hope and in love. He knows that the gospel has entered their lives individually and has changed everything. And that means that they have entered life in the new creation through the success not of the first Adam, but the second Adam, Jesus Christ. The first Adam failed where he ought to have succeeded. The second Adam succeeded perfectly in every way that the first Adam failed. So the image of God in these believers, that righteousness and true holiness, because of the gospel, is being restored. They are not perfectly holy, but they are being remade holy as a part of the restoration of all things. And so as they walk in holiness and righteousness brought about by the gospel's work in them, they will experience the blessing of fellowship with God once again, walking with him and walking worthy of him. Listen to how Sam Storms helps us understand this passage. The idea isn't that we are worthy by virtue of how we walk, but rather that we should walk in a way that reflects or displays how much he is worthy of our obedience or of such obedience on our part. Our great triune God and the marvelous and undeserved kindness that is ours in the gospel are of such infinite value, so exalted and beautiful and full of glory that we should always live in such a way that it be known. Our lives, by His grace, should reflect positively on God. This is the intent of Paul's ask. So two implications for us as we consider our life together here at Sojourn. First, consider this. The Father desires to have fellowship with you. As a person, individually, the Father desires to have fellowship with you with you. That ought to blow our minds. This means that whatever God commands, whether it be in the book of Colossians or in the rest of Scripture, whatever expectations God is going to lay out through Paul in Colossians is for the intent that they and we walk with God to fellowship with Him. We could put it in more historic categories and put it this way. The Father desires that you and I and all of mankind flourish. One of the questions behind so much of what our culture debates today is this question. 
What makes for human flourishing? And God's answer is quite simple. Fellowship with God is what makes for human flourishing. Or as the Heidelberg Catechism put it, truly knowing God, truly loving Him, truly living with Him, this is what makes a human being flourish. So that's the first implication. Second implication, we are able to bring God pleasure or displeasure by our lives. Now that is not to say we are capable of receiving more or less favor from God. That is not at all what Paul is saying. But he is saying that obedience to God fires the flames of God's delight. And when we fail to live as part of his new creation, living in fellowship with him, it brings him displeasure. Otherwise, he would not say and pray that we would live or walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I made the comment that doing, activity, flows out of being. Now, I should have made it clear at that point that that phrase is not original with me. I'm not that creative, okay? I have found it in at least two different sources, and that was after I'd heard it from a mentor of mine. Doing, any activities we engage in, specifically for the sake of the Lord, needs to flow from being realities that exist prior to that doing. So how does this relate to what we've just said? When we talk about obeying God and bringing pleasure to God, what we are saying is this, God is delighted in his own grace at work in us. It brings him joy. As that grace changes who we are in Christ, as it changes our being, it then motivates our doing, and God is pleased. So, what is the intent or the aim of Paul's ask? It is this, our fellowship with God. Second question, what is the content of the ask? What is the actual request that Paul is going to make? Verse 9, and so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul is praying that they would be full of the knowledge of God's will, that they would simply know what God's will is. But there are at least two ways of knowing something. We can know something by way of facts, right? You can know that space is cold and dark. Those are facts. Do you know that because you've been there? Well, I don't know each of your stories, but I'm not aware of an astronaut among us. So we know those things because others have experienced them and told us. They are facts, and that's one way of knowing. But we can also know something by way of personal familiarity with it. You see, I know that Tuckalichi Caverns in Townsend, Tennessee is also cold and dark. And I know it because I've been there. I've experienced it. Those are facts that you can believe if you've not been there, but I have a personal familiarity with it. I know it by way of experience. 
So Paul prays for a knowledge of God's will that goes beyond mere facts, A, B, and C, but goes to a personal familiarity with God's will, an experience of doing God's will. What is God's will? Well, we can know it factually. For the Colossians, it was everything written in this letter to them from Paul's hand as an apostle of Jesus Christ. For us, we know God's will. It's laid out for us in the pages of Scripture. But that is not what Paul is praying, that we would simply have an intellectual grasp of what God expects. No, Paul is praying that that intellectual grasp would get worked out into experience. And this type of experiential knowledge reveals itself in spiritual wisdom and understanding. And I'm going to quote Sam Storms here again. In other words, to know God's will is not only a matter of understanding what is pleasing to him, but also consists of experiential wisdom in knowing how to apply God's desires to the concrete realities and crises and decisions of everyday life. You see, at the first creation, mankind knew God's will factually and through familiarity. Say, Isaiah, what do you mean? Well, God's will was that they did not eat of any tree in the garden except one, right? We could restate that. They could eat of any tree in the garden except one. That was God's will. And as long as they did not eat of that one tree, they not only intellectually knew God's will, they were experiencing God's will. When they went to the tree next to that tree and pulled off a piece of fruit and ate it, they were enjoying experiencing God's will by not eating the one tree and by eating fruit from all the other trees. Factual knowledge of God's will and familiar knowledge of God's will. But Satan came and he offered better knowledge. He came only to deceive though. He knew that if they disobeyed God, they would know good and evil in a way that God never intended them to know. They would know evil, or rather they would know good. Their knowledge of good would no longer be what they are experiencing, but what they had experienced and what they'd lost and what they would no longer could experience on their own. And they would experience evil no longer as that thing they ought not to do, but rather that which they had done through their disobedience and its consequences. But through the true and better Adam, Jesus, we have been invited into a new humanity that's being renewed in true experiential knowledge of God's will by the Spirit. Jesus was perfectly familiar with God's will, not just factually, but in practice, not just in theory, but in actuality. He did God's will perfectly. 
And when you and I believe the gospel and we are buried with Christ and raised with him to new life, we are brought into this new experience, this new creation reality. Listen to how N.T. Wright ties all of this together. Wisdom is the characteristic of the truly human person who takes the humble yet confident place marked for Adam in the order of creation. What is that confident and humble place? Under God, but over the world. For Christians to grow up in every way will include the the awakening of intellectual powers, the ability to think coherently and practically about God and his purposes for his people. You see, the content of Paul's prayer is eminently practical. And because of our familiarity with the words, it may just kind of gloss through our minds that we're praying for the, the, uh, their knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Yeah, yeah, we, okay, move on. But we need to be faced with this reality, followers of Jesus. That when we are faced with temptation this afternoon, the story we need to tell ourselves is this. The gospel we need to preach to ourselves is this. We have been freed from the curse of the broken world around us because of Jesus. We have been brought to the restoration of the created order through the gospel, by the grace of God, because of the true and better Adam. And that what is being offered to us is a choice, just like Adam and Eve faced. It's the choice of, will we live through the second Adam's familiarity with God's will, embracing our reality as part of God's new and true humanity in Christ? Will we enjoy the continued blessing of fellowship with God through joyful and humble obedience to Him? Or... Will we believe the lie of Satan? That experiential knowledge of God or of life outside of God's will is better. And that rejecting the pleasure and fellowship with God in this moment is better. Will we choose to foolishly live as if we are still part of the broken creation? Or we, will we live as if we are being restored with the new creation through Jesus? And when we put it in such stark terms, cheating on our tax forms, viewing pornography, and expressing anger in violent outbursts of tone and words, these sorts of sinful impulses are seen to be less than human. They are a denial of what it means to be in Christ. And they have no part in Jesus' new creation reality. So brothers and sisters, what Jesus is inviting us into this morning is a better life. It's a life of flourishing, not of floundering. It's a life of fellowship with God moment by moment by moment because Jesus is restoring all things including us. So we've asked two of our four questions as we learn to walk with Jesus in his new creation. What's the intent of the ask? It's fellowship with God through holiness. What's the content of the ask? It's that we would, ex- we would gain experiential knowledge of God's will with the ability to apply it in everyday life. 
The third question is this. What are the results of the ask if God chooses to answer? If God grants, God grants Paul's request and gives the Colossian believers experiential knowledge of his will that infiltrates their thoughts and their activities, what will flow from that? We'll look at verses 10 through 12 and look for the verb forms, words communicating some sort of action. And those words will tell us what the results are. Look at verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience. With joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So these four actions in bold on the screen, are all results of Paul's asks, ask if God answers. And what are these four things? These are all marks of the new creation. They are marks of what it looks like for a human being to be brought into the finished work of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So let's look at them just briefly, shall we? The first two marks of the creation are this, bearing fruit and growing in knowledge. You may remember at the first creation, all the trees and flowers and grass and all of the plants bore fruit after their kind. Even the animals and the insects bore offspring after their kind. God even commands Adam and Eve to bear fruit after their kind, to have children and multiply and fill the earth. And in the new creation, we as a new and restored humanity, following our second Adam, Jesus, bear fruit in every good work, and we increase in our knowledge of God. Now, these two verbs, bearing fruit and increasing, or growing, are the same exact words found up in verse 8 that describe what the gospel is doing. Or rather, verse 5, sorry. Colossians 1, 5, and 6. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. Same two words. This reminds us that as God is at work through the gospel, God's new and true humanity is also at work. Or maybe we should say it this way. This means God, or rather, the means that God uses in our world to accomplish this work is the gospel in the mouths of his people and his work in the hands of his people. How is God at work in the world today? Two of the ways is this, the gospel in your mouth, believer, and his work in your hands. Sometimes this work is active, good works, towards those around us. And sometimes that work is actually reflective, that increasing in our knowledge of God. And so before we move on from these two, consider what this means for your vocation. Vocation simply means calling. I didn't say occupation. Vocation. What has God called you to this week? Whether it's studying, whether it's a business proposal, whether it's being a husband or a wife, 
whether it's changing diapers for the 30th time in a day, what God has called you to this week is the work he has put in your hands. So as you take that work into your hands and you submit yourself to the Spirit's leading and work within his world as part of the new creation, God will work through you for his glory and for his praise. He will bear fruit in you and increase your knowledge of him at the same time. But there's a third mark of the new creation. A follower of Jesus Christ is strengthened for endurance in patience and patience. We are part of the new creation and this restoration of all things, but that restoration will not be complete until Jesus comes again. So we live in this tension right now. The already of what Jesus has accomplished and the not yet of what will come. We live in the tension between the already and the not yet. And in that tension, there will be pain. There will be tears. There will be fruitlessness in vocation at times, or so it will seem. There'll be persecution, there'll be suffering, there'll be sorrow. But God has not left us to navigate that on our own. Did you see in verse 10, or 11 rather, how this strengthening of God for suffering is described? He says we are being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Paul is basically exhausting the Greek language to communicate the inexhaustible supply of strength that is at our, our disposal. Strengthened, we could just say it this way, we are strengthened with all strength by the majestic strength of God. These are all synonyms. They just build one upon the other. But for what purpose? Why are we strengthened? We are strengthened for endurance. This is a word that refers to hanging in there in trying circumstances. But we're also strengthened for patience. This is a word that has reference to trying people. So whether we are dealing with trying circumstances or trying people, God strengthens us with all strength according to his glorious strength for endurance and for patience. So, in what circumstance do you need this endurance? This week, in what relationship do you need this kind of patience? How is the Spirit nudging you to lean into either endurance or patience or both in order to walk with Jesus, allowing yourself to be strengthened with all strength by God's strength for all endurance and patience? Now there's a fourth mark of this new creation, and that's found at the end of verse 11. The fourth mark of the new creation is joyful thanksgiving. Now, depending on your translation, it may put with joy and connect it to 
the patience and the endurance, but it actually seems to better fit with thanksgiving. We are to, with joy, be giving thanks to the Father. Now, why would Paul find it necessary to include a motivation for giving thanks? Well, it's because you and I can give thanks for all sorts of reasons and for all sorts of motivations. I can thank someone out of guilt. I can thank someone out of obligation. Or (laughs) I can thank someone out of selfishness in order that they give me more. But the believer gives thanks to God out of joy for what he's already given. But sometimes, even as part of God's new creation, we need to be reminded what he has done for us, don't we? We are very forgetful people. That's why week by week we come again and we tell the story of the gospel over and over and over again, Sunday by Sunday by Sunday, because we forget. So as we move to our final question, let's ask the Spirit to fire our affections and inspire our joy through this reminder found in the last few verses of our section. We saw the intent of the ask, the content of the ask, and the results of the ask. But the final question may be the most important. What is the foundation? What is the basis for this ask? The basis is this. The success of the second Adam leveraged by the Father on our behalf. Why does Paul think that he has the right to bring such an audacious ask of God? Father, would you fill these people with the experiential knowledge of your will so that they would be strengthened, so that they would increase and grow in their knowledge of you, so that they would endure, so that they would joyfully give thanks? Those are some bold aspirations. What right does Paul have to bring them before the Father? Verses 12 through 14. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So if we wondered where this joy was to come from that we are to be giving thanks with, we should look no further than these verses. You see, it's not just that we were unqualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. You can be unqualified for a new role at your workplace, right? But that lack of qualification may mean you simply need more leadership development. Or maybe you're lacking in self-awareness in an area that you need a a life coach to come along and kind of help people or help you understand how people experience your leadership. Or maybe it's a skill you're deficient in and a simple two-week class in a particular skill or tool will qualify you when you were unqualified for something in your workplace. Is this what Paul is talking about? Is this the sort of qualification that has taken place by God through Jesus on our behalf? 
No, it's not that we were unqualified. We were disqualified. Our credit wasn't bad. It was non-existent. We had nothing but debt, no income, and no assets. But the Father has qualified us through the finished work of Jesus. The inheritance of the saints in glory is yours, not because of you, but because the Father has qualified you through Jesus. The second Adam succeeded in obedience where the first Adam failed. And just like we were represented by the first Adam in sin and therefore were under sin, so we also can be represented by the second Adam if we but place our faith in him. His successes become our successes. His glory becomes our glory. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. His restoration of all things becomes our restoration. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. This is sheer, reckless, radical, scandalous grace. And it's ours in Jesus. Isaac Watts wrote, The powers of hell agree to hold our souls in vain. He sets the sons of bondage free and breaks the cursed chain. How heavy is the night that hangs upon our eyes till Christ, with his reviving light, over our souls arise. The reason the apostle can make such an audacious ask of the Father for the Colossian believers and the reason you and I can claim this prayer for us and for Sojourn Community Church 2,000 years later is because the triune God has already done the unthinkable on our behalf through Jesus. He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of glory. He has transferred us from the powers of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And he has done all of this not because of anything we did on our own, but solely because the second and better Adam has brought us into his kingdom, redeemed our souls, and forgiven our sins. And because of that, the restoration of all things has begun. The whole of nature groans with longing. We wait for that promised glory. Still we rejoice because we know that sorrow's end is coming. He will swallow up death and wipe the tears from our faces. There's a story of a young child in an African village that asked his mother, what does God do all day? What does God do all day? This wise and godly woman responded, he fixes broken things. That's what God does all day. I love that. God, by the Spirit, through the work of Jesus, is in the process of fulfilling his grand design fixing everything that is broken. And because of God's plan, he delights to answer prayers like this. Paul's 
audacious ask that we would be filled with the experiential knowledge of his will, following our true and better Adam into everyday fellowship with God. And so this morning, as I stand and as you sit in your brokenness, Jesus is inviting you. And that invitation is simply this. Walk with him in his new creation. It will be a journey with many ups and downs, but in the end, it will be worth it because God fixes broken things. Let's pray together. Father of our Lord Jesus, you have given us words of life again today from your word. So we pray with Paul that you would give us grace to experientially know what it is to fellowship with you daily, to know your will. Father, I pray that we would learn to walk with Jesus in the new creation just like you used to walk with Adam and Eve in the first creation. Father, we pray these things through Jesus Christ our Lord who with you and the Holy Spirit reigns forever and ever and ever. Amen.